Now, Renee's already read the text for us uh, this morning, but it's probably a good opportunity uh, at the end of this first half of Hebrews just to take stock a little bit of where we're at in this book. And you remember the, the theme of this series. The title we gave it is Moving On to Better Things. And partly that plays into the idea that Hebrews, especially the first, well, really the first three quarters of the book, emphasizes the supremacy of Jesus, how Jesus is in every way better than everything that came before him. And that's not to negate these people and institutions of Judaism, but it is to show that they all find their glorious climax and fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth, who came and wrapped them all up and fulfilled them and has now reinterpreted this whole system of belief for us as members of the new covenant. So Jesus is better than everything, and it just systematically tracks through, better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than Aaron, better than Moses, and we've been working through some of those ideas. But also in the midst of that, the idea is that these people to whom Hebrews was written are being called to move on to better things as well. And you'll notice that interspersed through all the glorious theology and teachings about Christ in these few chapters have been little snippets into the lives of a community of people that we've started to get to know a bit. A bunch of Jewish Christ followers in the city of Rome in the first century, struggling to make sense of what it means to follow Jesus, struggling to make sense of this life and, and how to coincide this and reconcile it with all of their old covenant teachings and, and figure out life now without the benefit of the whole completed Bible that we have. They've got this letter to the Hebrews and it's teaching them about Jesus and they're trying to move forward and trying to figure out where it's all going. And it wasn't easy for them. It wasn't easy being a Christian in Rome in the first century, especially if you were a Jew. It was basically the worst position you could possibly hold because not only as a Christian are you going to attract real suspicion from the government and that state persecution level, but as a, as a Jew you start following Jesus and this is just a socially detestable thing to do. You're going to isolate yourself from your family, separating yourself from the traditions and the customs of your ancestors. It's just a slap in the face to your friends, to your family, to start calling Jesus of Nazareth this peasant carpenter. Lord, he's not the Messiah. He can't possibly be. And so it was tough for these guys. They were being abused in the streets, ridiculed in the marketplaces. They were losing their jobs. Some of them were having property seized, being thrown into prison. It just went from bad to worse for them. And at some point in time, they'd begun following Jesus and were trying to express their faith. They were trying to outwork their faith. And you get little glimpses in chapter 6 toward the end here of some of the things they were trying to do to, to really persevere. They were trying to help each other. They were trying to help those of them who were struggling, maybe who had been put into prison and, and trying to minister to them, trying to show the kind of compassion toward others that God had given to them. But despite all their efforts, things really weren't getting any better. Things really weren't going that well. And the problem for them, and, and this is a large part of what Hebrews is trying to say, the problem these Jews were facing is all of their sufferings that they were going through, all of their struggles and the heartache didn't really square very well with their theology. Always a problem when, when, when your experience doesn't stack up with what you think you believe. Because for these Jews, they were very steeped in a particular way of thinking. A particular way of thinking about God and a particular way of thinking about time and history and all these sorts of things. Basically, if you're a Jew, especially in this time period, you really believe there are two ages. The present age and the age to come. Pretty simple. And the dividing line between the two ages is the arrival of the Messiah. This is the whole expectation of the Old Testament. When Messiah comes, it's going to be different. When Messiah comes, we're going to be victorious. And so the present age is an age of suffering. It's an age of difficulties. It's struggle. It's trials. It's hardships. But when the Messiah arrives, it's going to be blessing. The age to come is about prosperity. It's about abundance. It's about everything we wanted. And Israel reigning over all the nations and all these sorts of ideas. You read Isaiah and Jeremiah, the wonderful promises 
of just uh, abundance in the land and abundance among the people of God. And so when, when you put yourself in the shoes of these people, these Jews that were now following Christ had come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right? So if they're believing now that Jesus is the Messiah, what age do they think they're living in? The age to come. Because Messiah, in their mind, is the dividing line. So if you've shifted from the present age into the age to come because Messiah is now here, what should life be characterized by? Abundance. Blessing. Things should have got better, not worse. Because this is now the promised age to come. Messiah is here, the kingdom's arrived, where's the good stuff? Why is there still so much pain? Why is there still so much suffering in the world? Why are things just not working out for them? This is the problem they had. It didn't really square with their understanding of what this age to come in which they thought they were living was supposed to be all about. And so because of that, what's going to happen if you believe God's promised one thing and another thing ends up happening in your life? Exactly what you see here in chapter 6. They start questioning God. They start firing these accusations. God's unjust. He's not looking after us. He doesn't care about us. He must have abandoned us because we're doing everything right. We've persevered. We've stayed true. We've been faithful. But God has not brought us any of the glories that he's promised us. He hasn't rewarded our suffering with blessing, but he's just left us to our own devices. It's got harder for us since we started following Jesus. Not easier. And so God's abandoned us. And he's, he's been unfaithful to his promises. Now that might start to make a little bit, bit of sense of what the author's trying to say in chapter 6 where he says in uh, verse 10, God is not unjust. He hasn't forgotten the effort you've put in. He hasn't forgotten your sufferings. He hasn't forgotten your faithfulness. But you need to keep persevering to the end. What's the implication? You haven't yet reached the end. You haven't yet got there. And this, friends, is something that I think a lot of Christians struggle with today, this whole myth that when you become a Christian, life's going to get better. When you become a Christian, life in general is just going to be a smooth ride, or at least a lot easier than it was beforehand. Christians aren't really supposed to struggle. Isn't that what the, you know, popular thinking? Christians aren't really supposed to have it that hard. Christians aren't supposed to struggle in their marriage. Christians aren't supposed to struggle with their finances. We're supposed to have a reasonably hassle-free, pain-free existence. Christians aren't supposed to struggle with depression. Christians aren't supposed to, to struggle with addiction. We're not supposed to have these hang-ups. We're not supposed to fight these battles. Things should be on the up and up for us. Life should be reasonably smooth. We shouldn't have relationship breakdowns and tension and strain. We shouldn't have anxiety disorders. None of these things should characterize the life of the Christian. This is often the type of myth that percolates around in people's mind. And it comes out of this way of thinking that these readers of Hebrews were steeped in as well. That now the Messiah has come. Now we're on the other side of salvation, as Mark put it. Everything should be rosy. And because you have those kinds of expectations, when it doesn't work out that way, as inevitably it doesn't, you get depressed, frustrated, angry at God, and many people end up doing what we talked about last week, just walking away and giving it up. And so part of what the author of Hebrews is trying to do here is give them a bit of a paradigm shift. Because if you trace it all back to this, this, this view of the two ages, there's something fundamentally wrong with that model that is causing this type of wrong thinking. And so the author of Hebrews says, think about this another way. It is true that there are two ages. 
And it's also true that when the Messiah arrived, who we believe is Jesus, that began the new age. That began the age to come. That much is true. But here's the difference between the Judaic view of history and the Christian view of history. What the New Testament teaches us is now that Jesus has come, the switch between the present age and the age to come has not been a black and white transition. It hasn't been uh, dark to light. It has been an overlapping of the ages. The two ages have overlapped. So when Jesus came, when he died, when he rose again, he brought the present age to an end in terms of stripping it of its power. He disarmed the devil. He took away all of Satan's power. He defeated the power of sin. And yet the present age still persists with us. The old order of things is still here. We still have a human nature. We still struggle with sin every day. We still live in a fallen and human and natural and decaying world along with all creation. And we're trying to make sense of our faith within the parameters of what is very natural and very human. We still struggle against the flesh. We still have a sinful human nature tugging away at us and waging war against us. And Satan is still fighting guerrilla warfare in the world. And yet when Jesus came, he introduced a new age, but not in its fullness, not in all of its glory. And this is critical to understand. I found this so helpful in just understanding in general the way the New Testament presents salvation to us. The new age has come, not the new age in terms of the new age, but the new age, the, present, the, the coming age of the Messiah. It's already here, but there's two aspects to it. There's a now and there's a not yet. Now we already have salvation. Now we have forgiveness of sins. Now Jesus has come and he's redeemed us and we have grace, we have forgiveness, we have the presence of God. Most importantly, we have in the now the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is in fact referred to in Paul as the down payment of the new age. The deposit, the guarantee of what's to come. It's as if the Spirit comes to us from God's future as a little foretaste of what will one day be fully the case throughout all creation. So the, the, the coming age is here. The new creation is broken into the present, but it's not here in full. It hasn't fully arrived. We still wait for the not yet. There's still a not yet component, and all of God's promises to us haven't yet been fulfilled. But we wait for that new heaven and that new earth to come when we will enjoy the glories of direct access to the presence of God when the, new, when, the, when the present age is entirely done away with and sin is completely eradicated. We no longer have these struggles. We no longer have these battles within us. We no longer have the spirit and the flesh tugging away at us. And we desperately look forward to that day when that war no longer has to happen. But we're released into the full kingdom of God and we enjoy the presence of Jesus forever. But that is the not yet that is still coming down the track. And part of the problem that's going on here in Hebrews is that these readers, this community, is blurring the lines between the now and the not yet. And they're expecting all the promises of the not yet in the now. Does that make sense? All the promises of the age to come, all the glories, all the abundance, all the blessing, all the victory, all the hassle-free, pain-free, stress-free living that is part of God's not yet, they're assuming that's going to happen in the now. And because it's not, 
the natural response is disillusionment, discouragement, anger at God, accusations flying at God, or else a deep depression about myself because it must be me. Must be something wrong with me. Must be something wrong with my faith. And so what the author is trying to do here, and this I think is such a critical message for us to grasp today, is trying to teach these Jewish Christ followers what it means to live between the now and the not yet. What it means to walk between the ages, as it were. Paul describes us as those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We're living in the present world, but we're also part of the age to come. We have the now, but there's also a not yet, and it's a tightrope that we walk, and it's easy to go one way or the other. How do we navigate that line? And to show us a little about what that means to live with the now and anticipate the not yet, the author goes to Abraham. You really can't think of a better example than Abraham, for, these, for the Jewish mind anyway. If you want to pull out the big guns, if you want to set up the ultimate model, it's Abraham. Because, you know, Father Abraham, he's the man. Everybody, it's all traced back to him eventually. And so there's this whole discourse here about Abraham and, and the promises that God made to Abraham, this unshakable oath that God said back in Genesis chapter 12, you can read it for yourself, and some of the following chapters after that, God appeared to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Out of your descendants, there's going to be this global nation, this, this global community who will be a light to all other nations. Like a city on a hill, they'll be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as the star in the skies. You are going to be the man. And Abraham had an unshakable faith that that was exactly going to be the case, exactly as God said it would be. And yet look in verse 12, the way the author describes Abraham's response to this promise as he encourages these readers. He says, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through, what are the words? Faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Faith and patience. Or maybe we could say patient faith. I think if there's something sorely lacking in the church today, it's a patient faith. A faith that doesn't expect everything in the now. Doesn't expect everything. See, Abraham, there's no question he was a man of faith. You look in Hebrews 11. This guy had an unshakable, unquenchable faith that God would do exactly what he said he would do. But that doesn't mean Abraham said to himself, man, if I just believe hard enough, God's going to fulfill that promise to me right now. If I just have enough faith, then I can bring God's promises into the present and realize them in this present life. It wasn't this kind of blind optimism. It wasn't this kind of naivety whereby he thought he could just wave a wand, summon enough faith, believe hard enough, pray long enough, think about it more, more positively enough, and he was going to somehow move the hand of God to pour all the blessings of God's future into the present. That wasn't the way it happened. Abraham believed God would do exactly what he would do, but in his time and in his way and in the present in his own life, Abraham exercised this patient faith, this trusting faith. He had a taste of that promise in the present, in the form of his son Isaac. And this is where in, the, in verse 15 the author said, Abraham waited patiently, and after he'd waited patiently, he received what was promised. Did he? Did he really, did he really receive exactly what was promised? God promised him that he would become a, a people as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Did that happen? Not in his lifetime. So how is it the author can say after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised? What did he receive? He received a son. 
He received the first little portion of that promise, the first taste, if you will. And we use that word in the different sense to, we, to that which we used it last week, a sampling, just a glimpse, a taste of what was to come. He received the first installment of the promise, but he never lived to see the whole thing fulfilled. So in a sense, Abraham lived in the now. He's got a bit of the promise, but the not yet. It's not yet fulfilled. And the fulfillment of that lay well beyond his lifetime. It even lies beyond ours. We haven't yet seen this nation that God talks about, this global community of people that would come from Abraham. We'll see that in heaven when people of every tongue and tribe and nation confess Jesus as Lord. That will be the final fulfillment of Genesis 12 when God said, Abraham, I'm going to bring forth from you this international community of people who swear allegiance to me. It's still coming. It's future to our day. So Abraham certainly didn't see it, but he had faith. Not faith that God was going to do it all in the here and now, but faith that God would eventually bring it to pass. That's the lesson that this community of Hebrews, these Jews, needed to learn, and it's the lesson that you and I need to learn today because, friends, it's really true that these lines between the now and the not yet get really blurry among Christians today as well. And we fail so often, I think, to use a patient faith. We fail to cultivate patience in our lives and leave God's not yet for the not yet. There's a couple of areas where this really shows up strongly. One's in the area of money. You might have heard that myth floating around, that God's will for you in the present life is to be rich. That what God wants for you more than anything else is to bless you financially, to bring you monetary wealth. And in fact, some go as far as saying, if that is the case, it's a mark of spiritual maturity. That prosperity is a sign that the hand of God is with you. It's a sign that you're a man or a woman of God. And therefore, if you're not rich and you don't, and you're not loaded with cash, there's something that's out of alignment spiritually. Some faith issue, something that's just not quite ticking over. And it, it's, it's interesting to me in the Western church how quick we are to take these passages that speak about God's blessing and His provision and His abundance and His giving to us and interpret them in financial terms. Have you noticed that? I think it's an indictment on the church in the West that we do. It's like we put dollar signs between every verse where Jesus says, give and it will come back to you. Well, that must be talking about money. It must be talking about God giving me back money for what I give to him. Why are we so quick to do that? I think it says more about us than it does about God. I think it says more about our priorities than it does about his. See, God does promise that eventually there will be a time of prosperity. The Bible does speak about that. Read the visions of Isaiah and Jeremiah. The land will be flowing. The harvest will be plentiful. The grain, the wine, all this sort of stuff. There will be absolute abundance. No more hunger. No more thirst. But, friends, that remains in God's not yet. And we're missing the mark if we pour all of that into the present and assume that that is all available to be cashed up in the here and now. There is nowhere in the scriptures that you find promises of God that this life is to be spiritually characterized by an abundance of finance and material wealth. It's just not there. And frankly, it can be damaging to propagate that kind of theology. What does it have to say to our brothers and sisters in Christ, living in third world countries, dedicated godly believers, but just have nothing to their name. What does it say to them? It says, well, obviously your faith is, is inferior because you're not being materially blessed. I think that's a damaging message and it just doesn't square with what we find in the scriptures. What sense does that kind of theology make of the life of someone like the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Corinthians catalogues his sufferings and says, you want, you want me to boast? 
You want me to boast of all my achievements? Here it is. I was shipwrecked. I was stoned. I went without food, went without water, lashes from the Jews. Or it's, it's frankly an embarrassing list. It makes you cringe when you read it. It certainly would have made the Corinthians cringe. Paul was a tent maker. He worked with his hands by his own admission, one of the lowliest trades you can imagine. He was offered money by the Corinthian church and he refused it. He said, I'm not going to take that right to make money off the gospel. I'm just going to do it for free. Paul, there's no argument, was not a wealthy man. He was not financially prosperous. And it's a brave person who's going to point the finger and say, therefore, Paul must have been lacking in faith. There must have been something wrong with him, something out of alignment. Now, he wasn't perfect. Clearly, he wasn't Jesus Christ. But I don't think we want to go as far as saying because Paul wasn't rolling in the dough, there was somehow something lacking in his spiritual life. It's just faulty theology. We've got to leave the financial and prosperity blessings in God's not yet. And even that doesn't mean that in heaven we're all going to be materialistic. But it means that there will be prosperity and there will be bounty as the Bible describes it in Jeremiah. But that's not yet. And in the now, God's priority is not that we focus on money. This is what Jesus tried to move our eyes away from. Focus on the kingdom of heaven. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first God's priorities. And he'll look after those other things. But don't, you can't serve God and money. And constantly he's trying to shift the focus onto God's agenda, onto the spiritual, onto holiness. Another area where this crops up a lot is in the area of physical uh, health and sickness. And again, you might have heard this myth um, bandied around that God offers you in this life, right now, in the now, the unconditional promise of healing if you will just pray, if you'll just exercise faith. Now again, it's a, it's a blurring of the lines between the now and the not yet. That's where a lot of this, this thinking lets itself down. It's true that Jesus died to bring us a brand new body. No question. Read 1 Corinthians 15. You'll see it described. The imperishable body. The body without decay. Indestructible. It's going to be a glorious body. Philippians 3 describes it as a body that resembles Christ's own glorious body. It's coming, but it's the not yet it's in the not yet. It's not part of the now. There's just no promise in the scriptures that that sort of redemption of our bodies is available in the now. Now, does that mean God can't heal people? Absolutely not. I think he can, and I think he does. But is there an unconditional pro uh, promise that if you'll just have enough faith, you can move the hand of God? See, some people, I think, use faith almost like a bargaining chip. It almost ends up, this, this faith, it, it kind of becomes just the power of positive thinking sometimes. Which is why I think sometimes when healing does happen, it can be psychosomatic because the mind's an incredibly powerful thing. But it becomes almost faith in what? Faith in faith. It's just like a commodity in its own right. Biblical faith is grounded and steeped in the promises of God in Scripture. And we just don't see in Scripture God offering that if you just have enough faith, you will be and you can be healed. If it happens, praise God. If it doesn't happen, still praise God. Don't lose your faith. And I think this is why so many Christians just have such heartache when the healing doesn't come, because their expectations were too high. So much struggle in the Christian life, I think, could be avoided if we had just be more realistic about our expectations of what this present life is going to be like, what the now really will be. God doesn't promise you that it's going to be a trouble-free, hassle-free life. His priority for you is not your happiness. I hate to tell you, and maybe I'm the Grim Reaper this morning, I don't know. But it's not your happiness. It's your holiness. That's what God's interested in. 
And the day that you handed over your life to him, that became his number one agenda for you. He said, right, I'm going to do whatever it takes now to conform you to the image of my son, Jesus Christ, to mold in you the character that I have. And that may mean, in fact, that there are times you may need to be unhappy in order to be holy. That may mean there are times that God's going to take you through the fire because it's through the fire that the gold is refined. Now, that doesn't mean, don't hear me saying there, that God causes absolutely every uh, ailment in your life, but you better believe he'll use it. He'll work all things together for the good of those who love him. And the kind of faith that we need is not this blind optimism that says, if I just believe it enough, if I just claim it, if I just say it, then it's going to happen. That's just not grounded in the scriptures. That's not real faith, friends. The kind of faith the Bible talks about, the kind of faith that balances the now and the not yet is a patient faith. It's a faith that lets God's not yet be the not yet and exercises trust and obedience in the present and says, I'm going to walk in faith. I'm going to walk in obedience. And the greatest grace in the New Testament, as one biblical scholar put it, is not the removal of suffering, but perseverance through suffering. Because that is what develops, as James puts it, proven character, maturity, teleos. That's where the real good stuff comes out when we go through the refiner's fire. And that's God's priority in our life. I think this type of thinking helps us develop more healthy priorities in our life than just having a, a trouble-free, fix-it-all, Jesus-is-a-genie-in-a-bottle kind of mentality where God's going to fix all my problems if I'll just pray. Let me read you just the last couple of verses of this passage as we reflect on what sense this makes of our troubles in the present life. Chapter 6, verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Isn't that a great picture? The, pr the future hope that we have, that one day all things will be made new, is, a, is an anchor for our soul in the present. It's a present anchor. And there's this great metaphor here, which I think is powerful to hold on to. That it's almost this picture of Jesus holding an anchor, if you can get your head around that. He's holding like a ship anchor and walking into the very inner sanctuary, the presence of God, and anchoring that anchor to the mercy seat, the very throne of God. And at the end of the other cord of the anchor is you and me, holding on for dear life. And it's like Jesus has anchored us there. He's anchored us to the presence of God. He's anchored us to the grace and the mercy and the presence of God. And that's the promise we do have in the now, that we, through Jesus Christ, are anchored to God's presence. That no matter what happens, we have unrestricted access to His grace and His power and His calming presence in our life, that He walks with us, that He can lift our heads and call us to focus on Him and draw on His strength and lean on Him as that tower of refuge that the Psalms talk about. And simultaneously, He can focus us on what is yet to come, focus us on the restoration of all things, Revelation 21, 22, when all things will be made new. And that hangs out before us as a great hope, as a glorious hope, but we're prepared through having a patient faith to say, okay, God, I'm going to leave that with you. I trust one day you'll bring it to pass, but I'm not going to try and pull that into the present, not going to try and create for myself or expect you to create for me some problem-free life. I'll accept the struggles and the trials of the present, knowing that the present sufferings I experience are nothing compared to the glories that will one day be revealed. And this patient hope helps us steer a middle course between two dangerous extremes. On the one hand, just a blind optimism that if I have enough faith, I can do anything. 
If I have enough faith, I can somehow bargain or leverage with God. And on the other hand, a deep despair that somehow something's wrong with me, that somehow something is, is inferior with my faith. You know, and I've seen this in the lives of Christians who have struggled and suffered, especially in this area of physical sickness and injury, and they end up just questioning their faith. Maybe I didn't believe enough. Maybe I didn't pray enough. Maybe I wasn't fervent enough in prayer. Friends, let the not yet be the not yet. Trust that one day God will make all things new. But don't cause this to look back in on yourself and somehow question your own spiritual integrity. Trust that God will fulfill those promises, but it's no reflection on you that it hasn't happened in the present life. It's part of this natural world in which we live. It's part of the present order of things that is still with us, and we need to persevere through that with patience and with faith. I read the story this week of a, a couple in the States, Marshall and Susan were their names, and they became pregnant with their first child, a baby boy. They went for their first scan and found out early on that he had a rare chromosome abnormality. And the doctors said to them, there's, there's very little chance that he will even survive to birth. And if he lives, it'll be for a very short amount of time. And they strongly encouraged Marshall and Susan to abort the baby early on while there was still time. And Susan, the wife, responded this way. She said, we believe God is the giver and taker of life. If the only opportunity I have to know this child is in my womb, I don't want to cut that time short. If the only world he's to know is the womb, I want that world to be as safe as I can make it. They left that medical center completely stunned. And on the way home, Susan said to her husband, Marshall, pregnancy's hard enough when you know you're going to leave the hospital with a baby. I don't know how I can go through the pain of childbirth knowing that I won't have a child to hold. And their parents prayed to God that if it was at all possible, he would at least let their baby boy experience the breath of life. Experience life, if only for a second. And in the delivery suite, God answered that prayer as their baby boy was born alive and they watched his chest rise and fall. And then just as quickly as he'd come into the world, he passed away after just two minutes of being alive. And in the heaviness of that delivery suite, one of the nurses turned to Susan and said, do you have a name for the baby? And she responded and said, yes, we do. His name's Toby, which is a biblical, short for a biblical name, Tobiah, which means God is faithful. God is faithful. And the article sums it up this way. Why did God create a child to live two minutes? He didn't. God created Toby to live for eternity. He created each of us for eternity, where we may be surprised to find our true calling, which always seemed just out of reach here on earth. There's a couple that knew what it was to have a patient faith, to hold out that hope of heaven and yet trust God's faithfulness in the present life. They knew the distinction between the now, where we accept what life brings us, and the not yet, where we anticipate the glories to come. Let's pray.